Well, 1 Kings chapter 8 is where we are, so turn there in your Bibles. We left off here several weeks ago when we were in the middle of this uh, temple dedication where Solomon and company had, been, had spent seven years building the temple, and it was during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, the biggest celebration of the year for ancient Israel, and they're dedicating this temple, and we stopped several weeks ago in the middle of that, and we're going to pick it up again here today. So First Kings chapter 8. And we're just going to start with our big idea today. And it's a prayer that I want us to begin praying as a church in response to our passage today. And it's this, show us your glory. I want us as a church to start hunkering down and praying that God would show us more of his glory here at Grace that we would go deeper and deeper into His love, that His presence would become even more tangible to us. And it's been pretty tangible as of late, if you've been around. People are coming to grace and they are being set free. People are experiencing joy. People feel safe here. I heard recently someone came and they said, I feel safe. That's what we want here. I've been hearing all kinds of stories through email and text messages and running into people, and they're telling me, God is at work here in this church. How people love to call grace home. I love that. But we want more, right? This is a good kind of stingy, a good kind of greedy. We want more of God's presence here, don't we? We want more transformation to happen. My family wants me to change. They want more transformation happening in my life. And I do too, because I hate my sin. We don't want to settle here, right? We want more of his glory showing up and changing us and transforming us and satisfying us and setting us free. More of his presence, which is what our hearts are made for and which alone will satisfy our deepest longings. We want God to come to church. I mean, we want God to show up here every week, right? I mean, if God doesn't show up, why are we here, right? I mean, isn't God the person that you for sure, no matter what happens, I hope God's there? I mean, if God doesn't show up, why are we here? So we want God to show up here every week. We come to this church to encounter the felt presence of God, right? We want God to come to church. And what happens when God comes to church? Lives are changed and people are set free and sins are forgiven and reconciliation happens and egos are humbled. That's how you know God showed up at church. That's how you know Jesus came to church that day. Egos were humbled. The gospel does its work when Jesus shows up. And Jesus gets glory big time as he shows off his mercy and kindness to sinners. And who doesn't want more of that? When God comes to church, watch out. You better put your seatbelt on when Jesus shows up to church. And when Solomon and crew dedicated the temple back then, Yahweh showed up at church. 
the Lord. Yahweh, if you're new to grace, Yahweh is God's covenant name in the Hebrew language. Yahweh showed up at church when they dedicated the temple. So look at 1 Kings chapter 8, picking up where we left off several weeks ago, beginning in verse 10, and hear the word of the Lord. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So in the middle of this temple dedication, it's taken seven years to complete it. In the middle of this temple dedication, the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies, and they set it down between these two large cherubim. You remember they were these uh, creatures that had the face of a man and the body of a lion and wings of an eagle. And so there's these two large cherubim inside the Holy of Holies. And the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant in and they set it down in between these two really weird creatures. And as they're making their way out, suddenly this thick cloud appears inside the Holy of Holies. Inside the temple, and they can't see, and they can't do anything. It's thick. They're having to kind of feel their way around. And then one of them says, hey, Bill, how much incense did you burn on the altar of incense? But it's not the smoke from the altar of incense, because the altar of incense was right at, at the front of going into the Holy of Holies. It's not the ark from the, the, uh, the incense from the altar of incense that's filling up this room. It's Yahweh's presence, his glory. God showed up at church. He has descended in this cloud and his glory is so thick that the priests can't see what they're doing, so they have to leave. But what we don't read about here in 1 Kings chapter 8 is what gets mentioned in 2 Chronicles chapter 5 when it recounts the dedication of the temple. Before the glory cloud descends... What happens? Well, 2 Chronicles 5 tells us they sing of God's love. They sing of His goodness. They sing of His kindness. They sing of Yahweh's love. And then, boom, His glory descends in the cloud. Listen to the same account from 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments in praise to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Right before the glory cloud appears, the worship band leads the people in singing of God's love, singing of his goodness, singing of his kindness. And then the Lord shows up. There were people with trumpets and cymbals and other instruments playing together. And then they sing in unison, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. They sing of God's love. And then he shows up. I think God likes it when we sing of his love. I think he smiles when we sing of his love. Why? Because God's love is connected to his glory. It's like when Moses is on Mount Sinai. How does Yahweh appear to Moses? In a cloud, just like he does here in 1 Kings 8. 
And when Moses asked the Lord to see his glory, what does Yahweh say? Moses says, show me your glory, Lord. And what does the Lord say? Exodus 33, verses 18 through 19. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And then what happens? Yahweh shows up in the glory cloud and he declares his love and he declares his mercy. In Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8, it says this, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, Moses, And Yahweh proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. So when Moses asked to see God's glory, God showed up in a cloud and declared his mercy and his grace and his kindness and his steadfast love. And this is why Christianity has to be true. This is why Christianity is true, because only God would save sinners. Only God would save people who rebel against Him. God's very nature is love, it's mercy, it's grace. Over 40 times in the Old Testament, and we'll see it later in 1 Kings, it says that God is provoked to anger. It never says he's provoked to love. It never says he's provoked to mercy or kindness. His mercy is just pent up. It's ready to gush out. At the slightest little prick, God's mercy is ready to gush out on a flood like sinners. You have to provoke him to anger. But his mercy and his love and his kindness is like a little prick and then boom, a flood. God shows his glory through saving sinners. He doesn't primarily show his glory by nuking us with his power He doesn't show his glory by blowing us to smithereens. He shows his glory by sending his son Jesus and saving people who don't deserve to be saved. People like us. That's his glory. God's love is glory. So Moses' prayer, his request of show me your glory is answered with this description of God. This is the first thing God says. You want to see my glory? Let me tell you what I'm like. Merciful and gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's your God, Christian. Now, he says here, I don't clear the guilty. 
If people don't repent and come to me, they're not cleared. They'll be punished for their sins for eternity. But those who come to Jesus and turn from their sins and trust in him and him alone, he says, I'm merciful, I'm gracious. This is your God, Christian. And just like we saw with the Ark of the Covenant several weeks ago, the glory cloud that appeared in Solomon's temple also tells us several things about our God. When Yahweh shows up in the glory cloud, he's giving his stamp of approval on the temple that Solomon had built. He's letting his people know that he has now moved in, if you will. And they now have access to his presence through substitutionary atonement. And so the cloud here, the glory cloud in the temple, is the tangible presence of God's glory. The tangible presence of his love for sinners. If you know your Old Testament, you know the cloud of God's glory also appeared at Mount Sinai when the Lord gave Moses the Ten Commandments. And the cloud then led the nation of Israel in the wilderness. And the cloud filled the Mosaic tabernacle when Moses dedicated it. The cloud was the reality of Yahweh's presence with his people. It led them through the wilderness. They could see the cloud leading them. And the cloud protected them from Pharaoh's army. When they're about to cross the Red Sea, the cloud comes in between Pharaoh and his army and the nation of Israel, protecting them. And it kept them cool in the heat of the desert sun. How practical is God's presence? You don't get a sunburn when I'm around. And the fire kept them warm at night. And so the cloud tells us that God is with his people in the middle of their troubles. God is with you in the middle of your troubles. Yahweh is present. And I guess you could nickname the cloud Emmanuel if you want to. So if you want to name the glory cloud Emmanuel and give it that nickname, that would be a fitting nickname because the glory cloud tells us that God is with us. But the cloud also tells us that God leads us and that he guides us. Yahweh led the nation of Israel through the wilderness with the cloud. Every time the cloud moved, the people moved. When the cloud stopped, the people stopped. And the cloud protected God's people from Pharaoh, and it shielded them from the sun. Yahweh's glory, the Lord's presence, shows up in the cloud. And what is God telling his people in this moment at the dedication of Solomon's temple? He's saying the same thing to Solomon and company that he said to Moses and company. I am with you. I will guide you. I will protect you. And who doesn't need to hear that about God? Maybe you're here today and you were overwhelmed with life and you were going crazy. I mean, you're pulling your hair out. You're stressed. You're overwhelmed. Anxiety. You're scared. You're scared about the future because the future is dark. The future is cloudy. The future is unknown. And you're sick to your stomach. And life just feels like too much right now. Is that you? Well, there's a cloud that filled the place in Solomon's temple that wants to tell you today that God says to you today, right now, I am with you. I will guide you. I will protect you. 
Listen, friends, Jesus is near. He's powerful. He protects, he leads, and he guides. And these are truths about your God that you can hang on to. Oh, I know you know them. I know Jesus is near. But have you rubbed them into your pores lately? Jesus is near. He's powerful. He's protecting you. He's leading you. He's guiding you. And you can get all that info from Jesus from a cloud, from like an ancient Near Eastern fog machine. And so God came down in the temple, and the author of 1 King tells us in verse 11 that Yahweh's glory filled the temple. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod. In Scripture, it means weight. It means heaviness or importance. It's like people used to say in the 70s, whoa, man, that's heavy. That's the idea behind God's glory. It means that God is the most important or preeminent person in the universe. Just like the hippies used to say in the 60s and 70s. Whoa, man, that's heavy. And you know, Chet was there in the 70s. I mean, you know he's that old, don't you? And Chet was there in the 70s and used to say, that's heavy. And Chet was there in Southern California when revival broke out among the hippies. The Jesus movement, the Jesus people. Chet was there and he can tell you about it. And that's what we want to see again. It happened then. It can happen. It can happen today. It happened in that drug culture of the 60s and 70s where people were taking LSD and and going on acid trips, where there's all that racial tension, and and people, Vietnam and the government, it kind of sounds like what's happening in our world today. Why not now? It happened then, it can happen again, and that's what we're praying for. But it happens when people see God's glory, and they say, whoa, man, that's heavy. That's the idea behind glory. The Hebrew word kavod, it means heaviness, it means weightiness. It's like the Beatles song, I want you, she's so heavy. John Lennon wrote that song for Yoko Ono. He was in love with Yoko Ono. And so when John calls his girlfriend Yoko heavy, he wasn't saying that she was overweight. John Lennon was smarter than that. John Lennon wasn't telling Yoko that she was overweight. He was telling Yoko Ono that she was deep. She was important. She was meaningful to him. And that's what the Hebrew word glory means. It's heaviness. It's weightiness. It's importance. And so God does everything that he does for his glory, for his weightiness, so that people see it and they say, whoa, man. So that they see it and they say, whoa, man, that's heavy. How do I get in on this? Ray Ortland says, the glory of the Lord, therefore, is God himself becoming visible. God bringing his presence down to us. God displaying his beauty before us. The answer to our deepest longings. And he promises to do this for us. It is the central promise of the gospel. Our part is to have the courage to welcome him with a bold restructuring of our lives. Nothing could be greater for us than to be wonderfully disrupted by the power of this hope. He's worth the upheaval. 
Our God doesn't work at arm's length or only through church programs or just by handing down decrees from on high. He comes. He brings His presence, and His presence is our joy. So if God's glory is the answer to all of our deepest longings, then we should be praying, show us your glory. Show us your glory, Jesus. We should be praying, let your glory come down like it did at the temple, Lord. Come and satisfy our deepest longings. Restructure our lives disrupt our little kingdoms of self with your glorious kingdom. You're worth the upheaval, Jesus. If we pray that, God will come to church. Jesus will come to this church. But what else is the glory cloud in the temple telling us about God? It's also telling us that there's a lot of mystery with God. Yes, God has revealed himself through the Ten Commandments, which were in the Ark of the Covenant, which was inside the Holy of Holies. And God has revealed himself through his word, through the Bible that we have. And God has even revealed himself through his creation. But there's still a whole lot we don't know about God. There's a whole lot we can't understand about God. That's what the glory cloud here in the temple is telling us. God is infinitely glorious and we have just scratched the surface y'all what we know of him is enough for our salvation but we're just in the kiddie pool with floaties on in the kiddie pool because there's an ocean of God to know there are deep waters that we'll never be able to swim in for all of eternity 10,000 years into eternity we'll still be in the kiddie pool with floaties on There's a lot of mystery with God. That's what the cloud filling up the temple is telling us as well. We can know what God expects of each one of us by looking at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that were in the Ark of the Covenant that had been placed inside the Holy of Holies. God has revealed Himself there. He's revealed Himself through His Word. But the cloud also tells us there's mystery with God. So we have to learn to live with mystery and be comfortable with it. And if you think this is just something that has to do with deep theological issues, then you have misunderstood the mystery of God. God's mystery is not just limited to the seminary classroom. God's mystery is not just limited to systematic theology books. If you think God's mystery simply applies to things like the logical orders of God's decrees then you are mistaken. Like, which view is correct? The infralapsarian view or the supralapsarian view? The, order, the logical order of God's decrees from eternity past moving forward, which one of those is right? You can Google them. Infralapsarian, supralapsarian. If you think God's mystery is only confined to the logical order of God's decrees, you're mistaken. If you think God's mystery is relegated to the comment sections of Reformed Facebook, then you are in for a shock because God's mystery is far more applicable than you may realize. It touches each and every one of us right where we are in our day-to-day lives. 
For instance, why does one drug addict get converted, come to Jesus, and they never desire to use meth again? And yet another one gets converted and comes to Jesus and struggles the rest of his life. Mystery. Why do some children raised by godly parents follow Jesus all their days while other siblings walk away and deny Jesus? Mystery. Why does God heal one person and not heal another? Mystery. Why does one Christ-centered church remain small while another church thrives and grows to multiple campuses? Mystery. Why did Yahweh decide to have two bearded creatures with the faces of men and the bodies of lions and the wings of eagles guarding the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies? Mystery. I don't know why. He decided to have two weird creatures guarding the Ark of the Covenant. I think it's pretty cool. Sounds like it would be a Twilight Zone episode. But why did God say, I want those two weird creatures guarding the Ark of the Covenant? Mystery. We have to learn to live with mystery and be comfortable with it. Listen, if you're not occasionally confused by and baffled by God, you might, perhaps, maybe have your head in the sand. Not that God gets a kick out of you being baffled. It's just that His ways are higher than your ways and His ways are higher than my ways. He doesn't always answer our prayers exactly as we wish, does he? He doesn't always give us what we want. I mean, do you really want a God who thinks like you do? Do you really want a God that you can fix, you can put in a, a fit into a nice little box? Do you really want a God who will give you everything you ask for? The mysterious providence of God that is seen here with the glory cloud in the temple is meant to strengthen our faith when we can't see God. This mis- the mysterious providence of God, sovereignty of God that's seen here with the glory cloud in Solomon's temple is meant to strengthen our faith when we can't see God, when we don't know what he's doing in our lives. It's not meant to frustrate you to the point of despair. It's meant to bolster your faith that God works behind the scenes most of the time. It's supposed to help you release your tight, white-knuckled grip on your life and learn to rest and relax because the mysterious God that you worship is working in ways that you could never imagine. The mysterious providence of God is not meant to give you a theological headache. It's not meant to give you spiritual heartburn. It's meant to comfort your heart, to stabilize it, to recalibrate it. It's meant to remind you that you don't know it all, and you never will, and that's okay. You may not be able to explain what God is doing, but you can always worship, right? When we're confused about why what is happening in our lives is happening, we may not be able to explain it all, but we can worship, right? 
And here's why we can worship. Puritan John Flavel said this, Oh, what a world of rarities are to be found in providence. With what profound wisdom, infinite tenderness, and incessant vigilance it has managed all that concerns us from first to last. What is God doing through everything in your life? I mean, that's an important question to answer, isn't it? What is God doing through everything in your life from first to last? Flavel says he's orchestrating all of it through profound wisdom, infinite tenderness, and incessant vigilance. You may not understand all that God is doing in your life, but you can know that he's doing it all with profound wisdom. He knows what is best for you. Listen, Jesus is smarter than you. He made Saturn just by speaking it. You're not that smart. He knows what is best for you. I know sometimes we think we know what is best for us. We don't. He has profound wisdom. Proverbs says, with wisdom, he created the world. He's got the kind of wisdom that creates planets with rings around them. The government can't do that. Hollywood can't do that. Although the Avengers was pretty cool. But he's working through it all to bring you good. And not just to bring you good, he's incessantly vigilant in bringing his good to you. He's persistent. And then, as if all that is enough, he's doing everything with infinite tenderness. Think about that. Infinite tenderness tenderness. What a glorious way to describe what we don't understand. What a glorious way to describe what God is doing behind the scenes of our life that we don't understand. Infinite tenderness. Is that how you would describe how God works in your life? That with infinite tenderness, he is orchestrating everything in your life from first to last, first breath to last breath? You can, and you should. Your heavenly Father is using a tender, caring hand to guide your life. Trust Him. When you wonder why what is happening is happening in your life, when you wonder what God is doing and what He's up to, believe that He's doing it all with infinite tenderness. Let that sink in. Infinite tenderness. When things are cloudy, when there's a whole lot of unknown, he's working with infinite tenderness and you can trust a God like that. You can put your hope in a God like that. You can lay your head down at night and sleep when you remember that everything Jesus is doing in your life, he's doing with infinite tenderness. So there's mystery with God, yes, The glory cloud in the temple tells us there's mystery with God. There's mystery, yes, but there's hope. There's mystery, yes, but there's comfort. Who wouldn't trust a God like this? To quote Ray Ortland again, he says, One of our theological leaders describes the church of our time as a place where God is weightless. What is the weightlessness of God? 
It's the opposite of his glory. If God makes little impact on the lives of Christians, if our churches are not wonderfully heavy with the felt presence of God, is God being glorified in us? We need to start over again. We need to rediscover God. The adjustments would be more than worth it because his glory is all our happiness. Why does the glory of God sit lightly on believers today? It may be the fault of those of us who are preachers. Is our constant message to the people, behold your God, or have we changed the subject? We seem to have sunk to the level of quick-stop churches where God is expected to lubricate the vehicle of American selfishness. Many churches have never known what it's like for God to come down and dwell among them in glory. People must see and sense that God is beautiful with a beauty they have never known. We want to be a church here at Grace where people feel the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God, where people discover or rediscover God, where they encounter the Jesus of the Bible, the real Jesus. We want people to leave here every week and say, God is there. I felt him. I felt his presence. I felt his love. I felt his power. I felt his glory. I felt his heaviness. I felt his weightiness. We want to be a church where the wonderfully heavy felt presence of God is the norm. We want people to feel and sense that God is beautiful and satisfying and to do whatever it takes to enjoy him more and more and more. And so let's be a church that welcomes Jesus, that welcomes the real Jesus and welcomes his glory. Let's have the courage to welcome Jesus with a bold restructuring of our lives. How about that? That's the opposite of the Jesus of many churches where they tell you that Jesus wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy. That's the American dream, Jesus. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The American dream, Jesus, gives you everything you want. He never allows you to suffer. He's a Santa Claus. And in the end, what does the American dream, Jesus, give you? Death. He serves up death because self is death. But the real Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus of 1 Kings 8, is weighty. He's heavy. He comes and he does mysterious things in your life that make you scratch your head. He comes and totally restructures your life. But his restructuring brings peace. It's painful sometimes, right? We can admit that. It's painful to have Jesus restructure your life. But it gives life and hope. And so the question for all of us this morning is this. Will we have the courage to welcome the real Jesus, the, this mysterious Jesus, and to welcome him with a bold restructuring of our lives? Do you have the courage to welcome Jesus with a bold restructuring of your life? We must all wrestle with this question. And nothing could be greater for us than to be wonderfully disrupted by the power of this hope. He's worth the upheaval. Jesus is worth the upheaval. He's worth having your world 
turned upside down, having your kingdom of self demolished by his. Because that's when you're set free. And that's when you really live. Will you welcome him? And as his glory, his weightiness, his heaviness, his importance grips our hearts, we are transformed and renewed so that we can live lives that point to Jesus. Our lives then become a living advertisement that God is good to bad people who deserve his wrath. God wants his glory to be seen in our lives so that others see how he treats us and they say, how can I get in on that? Every person here on the Central Coast needs to know that God is drawn to sinners, not repulsed by, drawn to sinners. That he is drawn to ruin, that he's drawn to brokenness, that he's drawn to damaged people. That he's drawn to people who have utterly made a mess of their lives. That's why we're here. That's why you live in the neighborhood that you live in. Because God, with his profound wisdom, placed you there. That's why you work where you work. That's why you buy groceries where you buy groceries. So that you can tell all the sinners that are there that there is a God who loves them and that he is especially drawn to people who are broken and weak and riddled with shame and guilt. Listen, if we welcome Jesus to restructure our lives, guess what? Revival will come. God will come to this church. God will show up here at Grace every week. I don't care if he fills out a comment card or not. We will know he had been here. People will come here and they will sense his presence. We'll enter a new season of ministry where the gospel surges forward in ways that will blow our socks off. God will become very real to us. The gospel will be something that we just can't get enough of and we just can't help tell others about this good news. We won't be able to keep in the good news that God is good to bad people. And people will come and they will say, whoa, man, that's heavy. How can I get in on this? The American dream Jesus can't produce this. It takes God's glory showing up like the glory cloud in Solomon's temple that day. We need God to come down. We need God to come to church. We need Jesus to show up. And so how does this happen? We have to pray. We have to pray these words. Show us your glory. Show us your weightiness. Show us your heaviness. We have to humble ourselves. And we have to pray like this. Let your glory come down like it did at the temple, Lord. Come and satisfy our deepest longings. Restructure our lives. Disrupt our little kingdoms of self with your glorious kingdom. You're worth the upheaval, Jesus. We have to humble ourselves and embrace our weakness and tell God that we are desperate. And if he doesn't show up, it'll just be business as usual. Who wants business as usual? We have to pray. We have to welcome the inconvenient, life-restructuring, ego-humbling, church-transforming glory of God. And that's how you know Jesus came to church. 
when egos are humbled. So are you ready? Are you willing? You can come tonight and every Sunday evening at 5.30 p.m. in the education building. We pray for 30 minutes. We're just praying for revival, praying that God would show us his glory. Why don't you come out and join us? You can hang around for the evening service or come to one of the classes. But we want God to show up. So are you ready to welcome the inconvenient, life-restructuring, ego-humbling, church-transforming glory of God? If we all open the empty hands of faith and we ask God to come to church, He will. And I think we're starting to see this at Grace. We've been seeing this over the last few months and the last year. I keep hearing story after story of God's grace in action here at Grace. Jesus is here. He's at work. He's already been showing up here at Grace. He's setting people free here. Religious people who thought they were good. And they're finally learning they're bad. And Jesus loves them anyway. And they're letting go of all that baggage and they're walking in the freedom of the gospel. How many times since I've been here, I've had so many people come up to me and say, I've been in church my whole life. I've never heard that the gospel was for me. I thought it was for me as an unbeliever to get saved, and I left it behind. People are being set free. He's restructuring lives. Egos are being humbled. This church is being transformed. But we want more, right? It's a good kind of greedy It's a good kind of selfishness. We want more. What if every family here started praying for revival? What if we all started praying, show us your glory? What if every small group, every meeting that took place, we were praying for revival? What if every Sunday school class started praying for God to show us his glory? I mean, like every single time we gathered in whatever group we were in, we made it a priority to pray for revival. To pray to see God's glory, His weightiness, His heaviness. To pray for more of God's Spirit to move among us. To pray to go even deeper and deeper into the gospel. And to love the gospel even more. I mean, can you imagine that? To be able to say a year from today, I love the gospel even more than I did a year ago. I didn't think it was possible. But I love it more. What if we all started praying with even more intentionality that God's glory would come to grace like it did at Solomon's temple? What if we prayed and God showed up? What would happen if God came to church? What would happen if God came to church every week here at Grace? I think we would like it. Let me answer that question for you. I think we would like it if Jesus showed up every week. And so we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at revival in our daily email devotional that we send out called The Vine. If you haven't signed up for this, there's information on the back of your bulletin. You can do that. We're going to be looking at what revival is and how it comes. And that really becomes the question. How can the glory of God come down to people who only deserve His wrath? How can his glory come down to people like us, sinners like us? That's the question of life, isn't it? How can God love people like us? The answer, of course, is Jesus. It's it's the cross. God descended. His glory came down in the person of Jesus. His love came down for people like us. His glory is most seen 
in his dying for us. The cross is where we see God's glory in all of its sweet splendor. It's as Jesus comes down to us from heaven, making himself nothing. That's how he displays his glory. On the cross, we see the deepest revelation of the very heart of God. Jesus laying down his own life for people like us. For people who still argue with our spouses over dumb things, right? I was thinking about it this morning. Isn't marriage really like two kids fighting for, to be first in line? Just fighting, trying to get our way. Two sinners living under one roof, trying to get their way. You throw kids into the mix? He came down for people like us who still argue and fight in our marriages, who still get bothered by our neighbors or bothered by other people in the church. The glory of God is seen in Jesus and it is seen most clearly at the cross. The glory of God, the weightiness of God, the heaviness of God, the radiance of God shines forth most brilliantly at the cross where Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, as Paul says in Galatians 2.20. And when we pray, show us your glory, we're praying for God to show us more of his love, more of his mercy, more of his kindness, more of his tenderness. And who doesn't need more of that in their life? How can I get in on more of that? More kindness, more tenderness, more grace. That's what I want. I don't want to play church. I want more of that. So buckle up, y'all. I think Jesus is going to start coming to church here every week. I think he's been here, and I think he's going to keep coming. So let's start praying this simple prayer. Show us your glory. Let's get real with the real Jesus. Getting real. That's how revival comes when people get real. Real about what's going on in their hearts. I was praying this morning, repenting, confessing all of my pride and my anger and my lust and my worry and my anxiety and my discontent. Do you want me to continue? I told you, you don't want a Photoshop pastor, do you? You want a real, someone who's real. And as I'm saying all these things to Jesus, I just said out loud, I was like, what? Oh, this is what I bring to the table, Jesus, in this relationship? Anger, lust, pride, worry, anxiety, discontent, depression, sadness, sorrow, sin. This is what I bring to, this, to our relationship. Okay, Sounds like I'm getting the better deal. Because he comes with grace and mercy and kindness. And so I'm praying this. This is what we bring to the table, sickness and sin and sorrow. It's like we say to Jesus, let's have a picnic in the park. I'll meet you there at 2 o'clock. We show up, and what do we pull out of the picnic basket? Sickness, sin, self. It's things that are just like, Bleh. and Jesus comes and he says, I love you, and I forgive you, and you're covered in my righteousness. That's what I bring to the table. That's what I bring to this relationship is forgiveness, cleansing, transformation. Pure, sinless Savior welcomes people like us. We bring the, and he brings mercy. So let's bring all of our, and let's get real with the real Jesus. And let's pray, show us your glory. Let's pray. Father,
Thank you for your kindness, your tenderness, and sending your son Jesus to save people like us. We do only bring stuff to this relationship. Even our self-righteousness, God, for those of us who think we're not that bad, for those of us who think we're pretty good, our self-righteousness is blah. As the prophet Isaiah said, all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Hebrew is menstrual cloth. Everything we bring to you, God, in and of ourselves because of our sin is gross. And yet you bring mercy, kindness, and righteousness. You clothe us in the righteousness of your son, Father, so that now we do things that bring you pleasure because of him. And we thank you for that, God. We ask you to show us your glory here and keep changing us and keep transforming us for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.